0: This is Real Estate Rookie episode 230.
1: I think when a lot of people start shopping for investment property, especially the rookie investor that's just building out their criteria, it's, it's okay not to have all of your criteria in the very beginning because I think that's a dynamic process, but often they're looking at performance and looking at properties and saying, you know, trying to match that to make sense for them instead of coming up with their criteria first. And I think you build that over time. But it's all about taking action at the end of the day and you know, critiquing your, uh, your investing
0: goals. My name is Ashley Kerr, and I'm here with my co-host, Tony Robinson.
2: And welcome to the Real Estate Rookie Podcast, where every week, twice a week, we bring you the inspiration, information, and stories you need to hear to kickstart your investing journey. And we always like to to start these episodes by shouting out some folks in the Rookie audience, And this week, we want to give a shout out to someone who left a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. This is Big Brown Investor. Uh, So this person said, I'm a motivated rookie, and I just wanted to say this is by far the greatest platform I utilize on a daily basis. The information you guys provide for a rookie investor is so invaluable. I look forward to getting my first property. Thank you with three praise hand emojis. So Big Brown Investor, we appreciate you. And if you haven't yet, please do leave us an honest rating review on whatever podcast uh, platform it is you listen to. So Care, what's up? How are you? And
0: if you leave us a five-star review, Tony will read it. I will read it. Yeah. If you leave a
2: one-star <laughs> review, uh, I will delete it. So.
0: <laughs> I wish you could actually do that, yeah. but instead I will just be crying. Yeah.
3: <laughs> Remember when you had to pay to get a Leeds phone number? It was like the dark ages. Until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost.
2: This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host.
0: So we are at the Bigger Pockets Conference yes. live in San Diego. Beautiful
2: sunny San Diego. This is like the dopest backdrop. For a podcast, I think I've ever seen. So, moving forward, we've already told the Bigger Pockets crew that we're only recording podcasts in this room moving forward. So, we need you guys to leave a bunch of five star reviews for this episode specifically, and talk about how much you love the backdrop. That way, we can we can keep this going.
0: And we're trying to figure out how to fit this in the back of Tony's car. Did you bring your truck? <laughs> I did bring the truck. Okay, perfect. I did bring we're the truck. We loaded this thing into the back and take it home.
2: But but we're excited, right? It's cool to to be here. Like. At BP Con, there's like so much energy. I walked into the morning session this morning and it was like a sea of people. Mm-hmm. It was so crazy to have so many investors kind of all in the same space, like here to learn, here to network. It's, it's been fantastic.
0: So last night it officially started with a kickoff party, mm-hmm. an event. Um, and then today is all day sessions, tomorrow yeah. sessions, and another ending party. Mm-hmm. But I feel like I've already met so many people, yeah. learned a ton of things just from walking around the hotel, yeah. going on yacht parties. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) I come from coming in just a a day early even. So, um, I think if you are going to some kind of conference and event, Mm -hmm. either maybe come in a day early or stay a day late to like do even more networking out of the conference setting, because that's so overwhelming getting into the conference setting, meeting people, you're trying to get to your breakout session, things Mm -hmm. like that. But, um,
2: when you, i mean when you can like come early and share a drink with someone and just like get to know mm-hmm. them in a more relaxed setting it yeah. makes the rest of the conference so much more enjoyable because now you've got that that buddy you're going to be hanging out with and i remember when the first big conferences i went to I bumped into a friend that I had met at a, a meetup a few months before, and I hadn't seen him since the meetup. We met at that conference just by chance. We both ended up going there. We spent that whole uh, weekend together, and then he was actually the person that introduced me into short-term rentals. So it's like you never know where these networking opportunities are going to take you or or the impact they'll
0: have mm-hmm. on you. I agree. So our first guest that we're having on today is going to help us with the rookie replies. Yes. So we are excited to have Zach on today. He is from rent to retirement and he is going to help us answer the Rookie Reply questions. Yeah,
2: and Zach, he's got a really crazy backstory. He he was interviewed on the OG podcast. Mm -hmm. We'll link his episode in the OG podcast in the show notes, but uh, he's built rent to retirement to be like this really big company. But even before that, he had a pretty wild ride as an investor himself. So anyway, we brought him on to kind of talk uh, turnkey properties and just some other issues that rookies might be dealing with that his expertise could lend itself to.
0: We know that on Saturdays you guys get sick of Tony's, you know, dry, my boring, voice my boring, monotone and, uh, voice and my laugh. So we thought it would be great to have somebody <laughs> else come in and answer some questions <laughs> to really break it up.
3: Yeah.
0: So let's bring Zach onto the show.
2: So Zach, welcome to the podcast. Excited to have you, brother.
1: So excited to be here, man. This is PPCon. Just awesome. Pleasure
2: is all mine it. Yeah, awesome. So we're going to jump into some questions we have from the rookie audience. Uh, the first one comes from Heidi G. Kwood. and Heidi's question is, can someone explain a non-KELOC line of credit? We've been told to check into a commercial line of credit to have cash for off-market purchases. Uh, we're looking at four to five doors. We have about $600,000 in equity across our rentals with no mortgages on them, but I don't have a firm grasp of requirements and a process for a commercial line of credit. So what is your insights with your results on that? That's a loaded question. <laughs> I think uh, historically
1: in, in our experience with commercial lines of credit or business lines of credit, which is not what you get in the mail, you know, saying you can bought five $75,000 credit, that's usually just a advanced credit card. Um, generally, we have the most success working with like a, a local thing that you're building a business relationship with and you're building up your line of credit if it's non-secured um, over time. And typically they're going to want to have, they want you to have the same amount of liquid cash available. Uh, that you're taking out and you build it up over time. But based on that question, Tony, I, I think it would make, at least in my opinion, a lot more sense to maybe just take out a mortgage on those properties or even a ELOC that they have significant equity on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's going to be a lot more
2: accessible and allow, allow them to expand their portfolio. That's a really good like point. I didn't think about like If they have no mortgages, that might be the easiest path, right? Just like <laughs> go get a mortgage and you don't have to worry about the line of credit. But you mentioned that starting with like the, the small smaller mobile banks, like what does that process look like? So if I'm going to walk into a bank, like what am I asking for? What are, like what documents do they need? To just kind of break it down for you.
1: I think it's it's all relationship based. I mean, this is really when you're talking about local credit unions, local banks. This is really where it gets relationship based banking, where they need to have uh, you know you need to have experience with them. They need to see significant deposits coming in. Um, usually, you know, you're, you're building rapport with them all the time. I think it's very unlikely for someone to normally just get a business or commercial line of credit that's not secured, just walking in the first time in a bank without building that rapport and that relationship over time. So, uh, you know, it, it really is relationship-based banking and I think uh, having, having a business with them and developing that over time.
0: Because if they were like, uh, think about a retail store or something, if they're going to get a commercial business line of credit, they're probably putting up their inventory or something like that as collateral. Is that correct?
1: Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. If you have collateral, I mean, a, a true commercial line of credit or business line of credit that's not secure. and mm-hmm. that's what we kind of talk about when we think of a line of credit, but if they're actually securing it against, you know, a business or, uh, you know, an asset, something like that, it'll be much easier to collateralize that. Um, but in my opinion, again, I think they just collateralize the, the properties they own free and clear.
0: I think so too. I think that's the best option. And, the only loan that I would say that they would be better off is if they actually have, like, a brokerage account where they've saved it, you know, invested a bunch of money in the stock market and then do a line of credit against that. Because you're going to get the best rates because it's so liquid. Um, but other than that, yeah, definitely going that route with putting the debt on the properties because you're probably going to have to show them a lot less if you're trying just to get an on secured loan.
1: They're in a good position. Yeah, yes. yeah.
0: congratulations, yeah. You guys. Yeah. You have lots of options. Yeah. Okay, we're gonna go on to question number two. Help me out here. I found an off-market deal two weeks ago and agreed in a price with seller. He said he was ready to move out and wanted this done quick. Let me note that I have not been pre-qualified, so I started my search for a lender and today I spoke with a local one. I stopped by the seller's home today and told him that wheels were rolling and I'll have an answer for him in upon a pre-approval of the loan. He raised the price 5K because he installed a new AC unit. He paid 4K. I brought him down to 93.5 and he said, okay, just three minutes later, sorry, I'd rather not sell because a new home will be more expensive. So now in order to avoid this from happening again, I realized I need to get them in contract as soon as possible. My dilemma is this one. Do I submit my application with the lender, find out if I'm pre approved, even though I don't have a home to buy, or just wait until a good deal is on the table again? Only reason I'm a little unsure about qualifying is due to my DTI, but at the same time, I don't want to hurry to pay the credit cards if not necessary. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Sounds like a lot of sellers we've been dealing with for recently you know, changed their mind. Uh... I, I think in this scenario, I, I believe the question we're hearing is: you get qualified with the lender first, and then find the dealer or for vice versa. Is, is that the base question? Yeah. yeah. I think you always go, you know what your financing options are because otherwise, you know, you don't want to be putting things under contract if you can't actually qualify for financing, uh, and you need to know what those those terms look like. With we work with a lot of newer investors looking to build their portfolio, and often a concern is: well, I don't want to run my credit; I don't want my credit to be. But people really don't understand, I think, fundamentally, like, where your credit needs to be to qualify for loans and how minimal of an impact, um, you know, a credit search or a credit report can actually have. We run our credit, like, multiple times a month all year round. Maybe we're still able to stay above that 740, which is kind of the highest threshold, at least from a conventional standpoint. What do you guys think?
0: Well, the first thing is, if you have credit card debt, I recommend paying that off because that is probably the worst debt that you can have. And I wouldn't wait until you decide to get a home or not. I would pay that off just because the interest rates on that are astronomical. (laughs) So I would take care of that uh, first, definitely.
2: Yeah, I I, I agree with you, Zach. I think understanding what your financing options should be step number one. Um, it's easy to go out and get properties under contract, but like you said, if you get a property under contract with half a million, which only pre-qualified for two fifty. now you're in a really sticky situation. So you've put down EMD or you've got some other contractual things you're obligated to, now you can't close. Um, I, I think understanding that, that is important. Now, if you are in that situation where you do have a, a good property that's a great deal under contract, and something that Ashley and I talk about a lot is if you can't get qualified for that loan, you don't have the capital available, can you find a partner that does? Or can you get a hard money loan? So it's kind of bridge that gap. So best route is getting the financing first. But if you get a good deal under contract and you can't get the financing, I would say find a partner, but then you find a hard way. Yeah. 100% partnership, procedure.
3: Yeah.
2: All right. So let's look at the, uh, the next question here. So this one comes from Derek Moore. Derek says, I have a duplex that I'm looking into that is off market. The numbers are good and the house appears to be in decent condition. Though I haven't yet had a GC or an inspector walk through it yet. Duplex comes with active tenants that are current on the rents, allegedly. Uh, the place doesn't need much repairs, mostly cosmetic. Here are my questions. One, should I pay to get the house appraised before I do any repairs? Two, when asking for the rent roll, is it normal to ask for banks, bank statements showing that the rent was actually paid? And three, is it a good idea to keep the tenants in the home if they are current on rent and have lived in the home for two or three years? So, question number one, let me just repeat it for you because I know it was, was a lot. So, question number one is, should I get the house appraised before I make any repairs? Well,
1: I, I think it really depends on your buying situation, but generally the bank is going to require an appraisal and you want the appraisal to be the highest value. So I would say you wait until, you, until the home is
2: repaired and then you have the appraisal. Mm-hmm. So and I don't, maybe I'm, I'm reading into it, but he, he said it's an off-market deal. I, maybe he's going with like some kind of hard money or something to, to that extent. So like, say that he's going hard money or he's got the cash you still get an appraisal in that situation? I
1: mean, we buy a lot without having separate appraisals, but we also know what the value is. I mean, we, we run our own BPO's uh, or we, we run comps to know. So, I mean, I think appraisals are good to have, but they're also very subjective in, in some cases. And if a bank requires an appraisal, then you're going to have that. But I, I think the more important thing is know your numbers, know your ARV, know the repairs that are going into it, because the appraisal really does matter in that case.
2: So if you're buying off market and say, you know, for, for Derek's situation, say you're buying off market, it's a cash transaction, a money transaction, would you still recommend you get an inspection done on that property, or, or what's just kind of your process? Yeah, I get mean, an inspection done. Yeah, and appraisal is an inspection to some degree
1: on its own, but yeah, I, I think inspections are something we always recommend to everyone, no matter how experienced or new you are, inspections and gives you a better negotiation standpoint as well.
2: One of the things that we love to do is, like, we'll do an inspection of the property and we'll send our handyman to meet the inspector on the same day. And they, our handyman will just, like, walk behind the inspector, take it down of everything they're calling out. And then as soon as the inspection's done, we have, like, a, a scope of work and a, a bid on what it would take to repair that, that inspection report. So um, I agree. I think it's a great negotiating tactic once you've got a property in your contract to kind of, you know allow the seller to be a little bit more reasonable, which was probably more difficult than last year because everything was going crazy. But I think as you know, we get into the back half of this year I and mean, then early next year those those will give you a little bit more
1: weakness. Then so you're so dialed in on your systems.
2: <laughs> <laughs> <I know. laughs> you gonna bid and <laughs> in
1: the inspection oh, bid. I love
2: yeah. it. Yeah. Okay. So question number two. Um when asking for the rent gold, is it normal to ask for the bank statement showing the rent action? Exactly.
1: With our experience with sellers of that's You get rent rolls in all shapes and forms. I mean, I I don't know if it's inappropriate. I'm curious to hear what your guys' opinion is on this. But I think kind of most of mom-and-pop owners maybe don't have their finances prepared well enough to really give you um, a a clean accounting, at least historically when we're buying rentals rentals that are already rentals. Um, Usually there's an issue. They're they're not monitoring the the income on it, I don't know.
0: Yeah, what we usually do is we send out an estoppel agreement to the tenants. So we have them fill out their name, their contact information. We have them state basically the things that are in the lease. So what's the rent you pay? When's the last time you paid rent? Uh, What repairs and maintenance need to be done in the property? Things like that. So we kind of match what they say with what the landlord said and kind of see how that correlates.
1: And for anyone that doesn't know, for Estoppel, because I think this is more common in like the commercial space and maybe not so much in the residential, but basically mm-hmm. the tenant's verifying that the lease is correct and they, mm-hmm. they've been adhering to
2: the lease.
0: Yeah. Did I say that
1: correctly? Yes. Or,
2: yep. What happens if there's a discrepancy between what the tenant says is happening mm-hmm. and what the landlord is happening.
0: Yeah. So then that's where you go back to the landlord and say, this is, you know, what your tenant stated and signed and then ask for the follow-up proof. So that's when it would probably be appropriate to ask for the bank statements or, you know, if they're using some kind of Property management software where they can show that you know the ACH went through for not that report for you, or you know canceled checks, copies of the canceled checks to show that the tenant did pay and what the amount was that they actually paid.
1: So, actually, are you asking every seller uh, to allow for a tenant to stop holes in every property? If buyer? there
0: is a tenant in place, yes. I love that. Yeah.
1: That's great due diligence. Yeah. Around a tenants.
0: yeah is it a good idea to keep the tenants in the home if they are current on rent and have lived in the home for two or three years
1: i think you you have to right you have to adhere to that lease you can't evict them if there's no grounds to do that so if they but if they've been a good tenant why why would you change that i mean if they were vetted appropriately a lot of times when we inherit tenants they don't have a history of being a great tenant at least with properties that are underperforming but if you have a good tenant those are hard to come by so keep them
0: yeah, I think in Derek's situation, he mentioned that he wanted to do repairs in the beginning. So I think it really depends on what kind of repairs you're doing. So if you need the tenants out to do a major remodel so that you can get the appraisal, refinance, put your money back out, um, then yes, you probably want to ask the tenants to leave, but it really depends on the lease. Like If they are in a two- or three-year lease, you can't just ask them to leave. <laughs> I mean, you can ask, but they don't have to leave. Um but if they have been paying, they keep the you know property in good shape. You can do the repairs around them. Uh, yeah, you might as well hold on to a, a good tenant.
1: We've had a lot of tenants that have been extremely happy that we're coming in and repairing and improving their living situation as mm-hmm. well. So, I mean, that also opens the door to if there's been poor communication with a previous landlord, you can repair those relationships and improve the house and actually rekindle that relationship with the tenant as well.
0: Yeah. One thing we've done too is giving the option to the tenant, say, you know, we're going to do these repairs. Your rent is going to increase to this amount on this date, or, you know, you may vacate at the end of your, Um, so I think giving the option too
1: is a good idea. I love that idea. Do Do you find that most tenants end up staying?
0: Yeah. And another thing that we've done too with Coming into a property where there's tenants in place, if they're paying way below market rent already and there's not, you know, maybe a couple things that need to be fixed, we do a slow rental increase too, which we have find people love that. We show them comps like, okay, if you're going to move in to, you know, a similar property, that's, you know, the same amount of bedrooms, bathrooms, same kind of upgrades. Mm-hmm. That we will, um, we're still going to be a little bit below market rent or at market rent. So if you move, you're going to end up paying more or the same amount plus your moving expenses. Um, so then we slowly do a, a rental increase, maybe you know twenty five dollars a month till they get to that point, or you know twenty five dollars for two months in the next two months, the fifty dollar increase. So we've learned that that has really helped a lot too, doing it that way to keep these tenants paying. We had one tenant that lived there for thirty years. And she was about $200 below market rent when it was, and that's how we did that gradual increase with her.
1: I think you just just took the gold for longest uh, occupancy. (laughs) 30 (laughs)
0: years? Yes, and that was also about five years ago, so 35 years now.
1: Yeah, That is golden advice, I love that.
2: Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. All right, so the so next question for you is, Zach, this one comes from Nody Mungad. I do I, I got your name right now. So Nody says, Ricky, question here. I've been looking at different deals out there in order to learn how to run the numbers, and I'm especially interested in rental properties that are turnkey. I used the BP rental calculator on this deal, and I recently saw a house that was on sale for $149,000 with a monthly rent of $1,150. Clearly, this doesn't mean the 1% Um, I run the numbers myself on the Deepin Calculator and had a positive cash flow of $200 per month. My question is, what am I missing here? I thought that if the problem doesn't meet the 1% rule, it would have a negative cash flow. Is this common to find with uh, of properties?
1: Man, I think uh, today this is, we have these conversations all the time because people want to invest based on rules of thumb. But Mm -hmm. I encourage them to invest based on their criteria Mm -hmm. and and their goals. The 1% rule... Really doesn't exist in today's market, and if it does, maybe it's a property that's at a low price point that may not be in a good a good area. I can tell you with the many turnkey properties that we offer, there really isn't any one percent. We can go into a C or D class area to try to, on paper, show a one percent rule. But remember, when you're evaluating based on those numbers and pro formas, that's just an anticipated performance. You could have a tenant that you know moves out in the house of vacant for six months out of the year, and then it really doesn't matter at that point. So I guess the way that I would encourage people to approach their investing is to have a baseline criteria, know what numbers do work for them based on their financing and investing needs, and then try to obtain those and also be conscious of the locations that they're investing in. I think the 1% rule really doesn't exist, to be quite honest, anymore. Uh, and I, I think if, if you are looking at 1% rule-type properties, be cautious about the the neighborhoods that they're in.
2: I think so many rookie investors, they, they come to, to us and they want to know what market should I invest in, what city should I invest in, what's a big deal, um, should I buy this or not? And a lot of times it's almost impossible for us to get those answers because, like you said, everyone has their own criteria, their own uh, level of return they're looking for. So when people ask me that question. I always say it depends. Like what's more important to you is appreciation more important to you. Is cash flow more important to you? Is the return on your investment more important to you? Is like there's so many different things you can look at when you're evaluating a deal, and there are ways that the one percent rule, two percent rule, all these other sort of rules can be beneficial. But at the end of the day, they're they're just rules of thumb. They're they're not laws of real estate investing. So to, to answer Nomi's question, I think to reiterate what she said, it's like what is your goal? If $200 in cash flow is is good for you, and you're getting a decent cash on cash return from value, it doesn't matter
3: if it's that one percent Right?
0: And to kind of touch on your point that, you know, we are hitting the 1% rule in today's market or in the last two years, that it's probably in, you know, low income area, you know, more affordable house and going to be a headache property. And I can completely attest to that, where, you know, I've buying $20,000 duplexes that were way more than hitting the 1% rule, but they were headache properties. And also, I was not hitting the 50% rule. So you're supposed to have your expenses 50% of what the monthly rental income is. And since the property taxes were so high in this market that you weren't hitting that rule. So it just goes to show that you can't just rely on one rule of thumb or even one ratio or one statistic. It's all about what your criteria is, what your goal is, and then kind of building out all of the you know, ratios, the rules, and then pulling from that as to building the big picture instead of just one thing.
1: I think when a lot of people start shopping for investment property, especially the rookie investor list, just building out their criteria, it's, it's okay not to have all of your criteria in the very beginning, because I think that's a dynamic process, but often they're looking at performance and looking at properties and saying, you know, trying to match that to make sense for them instead of coming up with their criteria first. And I, and I think you build that over time. But it's all about taking as- action at the end of the day and you know, critiquing your, uh, your investing goals.
2: All right. So I'm going to jump into the next question. This one comes from Christina Iacovoni. And I hope I got your last name right, Christina. So Christina says that she's about to close on her first property. It's a turnkey condo with tenants and a property manager already in place. The original plan was to self-manage, but keeping the PM was part of the requirement of the deal. And the numbers were mm-hmm. so here right, right. Do I actually get the keys to the condo or does the PM and the tenant keep them? Am I required a 90-day notice to terminate with the PM? I'm sorry. She says, I am required a 90-day notice to terminate with PM, but am required to keep them through the end of the lease. tenant is required a 60-day notice. Should I provide contact info to the tenant and build a relationship if I'm thinking of self-managing opportunity? I'm not required to ask for insurance Is a better to pay out of pocket annually versus escrow with the mortgage payment. What else should a need know? So I'm gonna I'm gonna try and rephrase that so I get the, the big questions here. Okay, so the first question is does she actually get the keys to the condo <laughs> once she closes it or does a PM and the tenant keep them? Um, and then should she start building a relationship with that tenant now, knowing that once that contract is able to terminate, she plans to self-manage. And then is there anything else she she should know and the insurance she should ask for that?
1: Um yeah ten ten minimum questions'll to, really <laughs> you know, to get through them. Uh, I think this is very applicable to your last point about it. just depends you know what I, mean? I mean, first of all, consult with your local attorney. I mean, state laws vary you know depending on um you know how you interact with the tenant. I mean personally, we don't manage we don't not self manage any of our properties at this point because our time is better spent building our business and so we want we want to have management, but have right management in place. Typically the keys go right to the management. I never see those keys whenever we buy a property, um, nor do I want them. I don't want to have them. Uh, you know, we don't engage with our tenants. I personally like the anonymity of not having tenants know who we are. They should be engaging with the management. That's why you have a professional property management in place. As far as escrowing, this is one thing for tax and insurance. We actually uh, pay it on our own. We don't escrow it with mortgages, whether this is a conventional loan or commercial property that we buy. We always pay our own tax and insurance because I just don't like, uh, even though it's more convenient, I don't like having the bank, they prepay it basically and they collect it up front. So you're paying it in advance. And that can be a lot of money when you have a lot of property. But you also need to remember to do that if your taxes are due twice a year. You know, if, when is your insurance? Don't let that lapse. You don't ever want that to lapse. So... It's, it
2: it's made a And I'm, I'm the other way. Like, I'd like to have my insurance and taxes, like, compounded with my uh, with my mortgage monthly payment because I like the convenience of it. And I'm the king for getting it, So I know that, like, I'll be the first guy who doesn't have insurance on any of his rental properties. Business for getting to make that payment. So I do like that convenience. But your, your point, too, about, like, the, the manager having the keys. It's like, yeah, as the owner, obviously, you own the property. So if you want to get the keys, you can get the keys. But... The whole reason you're paying as property manager is so that they can't hold the keys to what when we're supposed to. Uh, we've sold off all of our long term rentals, but when we did have ours, I didn't know what any of my tenants looked like, right? Like they were in multiple states away. So if I booked into them on the street, we wouldn't know each other from some other random person. I love that. Exactly.
0: I'm a little bit different. I like to maintain control of the property. So at close, I like to get a set of keys. I like to have the tenant's contact information. Um, and I like to have a copy of the lease, like all upfront, um, instead of it just going directly to the property manager. Um, I like to have those things with me too, so that I always have some kind of control over my property, especially as you're starting out, I think your first property, even, I mean, I understand as you get to build and grow and scale, it's just not feasible to have this rack in your basement of all the keys for all your units, but, um, yeah, I, I think it's perfectly acceptable to ask for keys at closing um, for the property that you are purchasing. Um, but it, when the tenant moves out or anything like that, you're going to be putting, probably putting in a new lock, putting new keys on, to for the property. Um, as far as the property taxes and insurance goes with escrow, um, right before BPCon started on Saturday, we released an episode about my... Um, property tax bill that wasn't paid. And I've actually had a couple people come up and talk to me about it already. Great timing for, me to vent on a podcast and to release right before BP con. but it was where a property tax bill wasn't paid. And, um, Tony and I talked about it and he's like, well, you should just put them all into escrow. So that's something I have to talk to my commercial lender about on the residential side. It's very easy to have that happen, but on the commercial side, it wasn't. And I think one reason that I was always kind of against it was that you're paying the money up front where instead it's just one bill you pay it in the year. So, you know, if you're purchasing the property and then your insurance is due every you're usually you pay it up front. You, you pay years of property taxes up front, years of insurance up front. Well, then if you're escrowed, you start paying and adding to the following years where instead, you know, I could use that money for something else. And then, you know, the end of the year, pay it. So that's kind of my reason to be against it. But after having a hard back <laughs> I'll probably be more towards escrow.
1: So is that how you get tenants to stay for 35 years? Yeah. <laughs> okay. yeah. But that's a good clarification point actually. I think generally like conventional loans, single family, small multi, it's expected for the lender to escrow though.
0: Yeah. It's almost usually almost always required, even like you don't have an option.
1: As we see kind of on the commercial side, you can grow your portfolio. Sometimes they will refuse to mm-hmm. escrow it. They yeah. won't even escrow it into yeah. it. Um, like our property management for some of the retail centers we buy, they actually pay the tax and insurance, but it's not technically escrowed into the uh, into the, the loan. But yeah,
2: uh, I'm right there. We need something to make sure we're yeah. paying it on yeah. So I, I just want to touch on that last piece. So Is there anything else maybe we should know about buying terms and properties? Turnkey is a great way for people to get
1: started, to diversify, especially if their local market is uh, too expensive to get started in or to to scale beyond what they're doing on their own. Even if they're an active investor, turnkey is a great way for them to just add doors to their portfolio strategically, which in my opinion is kind of the name of the game here. I think what we're all trying to achieve. Uh, but do know who you're working with. Uh, you obviously want to invest in the right locations with the right people. Just because you're buying turnkey does not mean that you are um, safeguarded from any normal risk that real estate would have. You still have tenant issues potentially. So just know that going into it, I think that's the biggest disconnect when we work with investors that are wanting to buy turnkey is just thinking that this is going to be completely passive and it still is active to some degree. Even if you have a great tenant property management set up but it can be a great way for people to get started, avoid some pitfalls to buy and scale over time.
2: So let me ask this question, Zach. So like we invest in Airbnbs, vacation rentals, and you know, it's it's a very kind of sexy asset class right now. A lot of people to get into it, but also caution and let people know that it's not for everyone. Like not everyone should be buying vacation rentals and managing themselves because there is definitely more work that goes into that asset class versus others. So who would you say that maybe is turnkey not for like what kind of investor does it maybe not?
1: Four four. Oh, that's a great question because I want to conform it to everybody. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> come by house with us. No, um, you know, I, I think the person that uh, you know can do to do better on their own, being an active investor that understands the the risks of being an active investor, that um, really enjoys that. And I mean, short term rentals they they can be fully. I mean, they're they're full on management, right? I mean, even if you have management, that's why you pay them twenty or thirty percent, possibly more. Uh, but the people that are really excited and passionate about doing their own thing with real estate—they don't want to be a passive investor. Yeah, uh, you probably can obtain better returns actively investing, but there is more work and potential risk with that, of course.
2: And the thing I always say is, like, to to be good at like, anything, in investing, you need three things: time, desire, and ability. And if you're missing any one of those key ingredients, like, you're going to struggle. And if you can, I guess, uh, fill that gap with a termite company or a robo whatever it is. You'll, you'll probably find more success because if you don't have the time, it's going to be very difficult to find an undervalued asset to, to rehab it, to get it stabilized, to manage those in long term. If you don't have the uh, desire, like, even if you have the time and the ability, you're going to hate doing it, right? So you need to be miserable through those things. And it's just important to be honest with
1: yourself, I think. And that's excellent points. Be honest with what your goal is, what your time, what your experience level is, and then take action accordingly.
0: And it's such a great way for new investors to get started, to learn from what other people are doing. You get a whole team, you get everything there so that you can say, okay, this is how this operates. This is how this operates. And then if you want to go on to start growing yourself or something, you have already kind of watched firsthand those resources, the team you need kind of go into play. So I think for rookies, turnkey is a great option just to get started. If you've been especially if you've been in analysis paralysis, you've been delaying taking action because you don't have time. You And it's been years that you've been wanting to do this. Like that, I think is like a perfect candidate for getting into turnkey.
1: Yeah, the mindset aspect of it, actually I'm, I'm so happy that you said that because so many people, and especially in the beauty community, they get stuck, they're excited about real estate. They get stuck in the analysis paralysis. That first property, in my opinion, is not important financially. It's important mentally and emotionally. And if, Turnkey is an easy access way to get you started. Then do that. We have so many investors that come back years later and they, they haven't bought from us for you know five or six years, but they've gone out and built this insanely large portfolio and been extremely successful. And they're like, hey, those first couple of properties gave me the confidence to go out and do that. And I love hearing those stories. So thanks for mentioning that.
0: Point. Yeah, that's really awesome. Uh, just one last question about Turnkey is what are maybe like three questions that someone should be asking a Turnkey provider when vetting them?
1: Uh, I definitely would say track record is the most important. Let's talk about, uh, you know, the markets and make sure that their, their model and uh, their business meets your criteria, because not all terms, is created equal. People work in different markets, they have different niches in business. Some people do, you know, short-term, long-term, multifamily, new construction and development. So just make sure, one, that that business, I think, matches your goals and criteria, at least fundamentally. Make sure that they have a quality track record and you want to check references due due, due diligence, um, just like with anyone that you jump into business with. And the third question is, yeah, to do these properties make sense for my criteria? And if they do, then I think you can take that.
0: Well, that was great. And thank you so much for joining us here live at BPCon. Can uh, you tell everyone where they can find out some more information about you and possibly reach out to you?
1: Absolutely. Uh, you can visit rent to retirement.com. That's rent to retirement.com. Uh, we have all links to social media. We'd be happy to talk about anything you're doing investing. We do short-term rentals, we do multifamily, new construction, we have our hands in a lot of stuff, and we're here to add value. Please reach out and you guys, thank you so much for having me. This has been a lot of fun. BBCon 2022.
0: I'm Ashley at Welcome Rentals, and he's Tony at Tony J Robinson on Instagram. Thank you guys so much for listening and we will be back on Wednesday with a guest.